0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, January 20th, 2017, from Slate. It's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, I saw a new president give a short, blunt, unnuanced, often untrue address to a citizenry, all of whom he represents, but many of whom he is unconcerned with. Others interpreted it differently. They saw things a bit deeper in there. Matthew Continente of the Washington Free Beacon saw, quote, a vituperative critic of the post-Cold War international system, where the architects of that system see it as a bulwark of stability and global prosperity. Trump sees it as diminishing the United States in favor of foreign countries and an international class of wealthy political and financial elites. Anthony Wren of the Urban Institute notes Trump's speech was full on nationalist paleocon vision that repudiates the current neocon influenced conservative orthodoxy. Okay, well, maybe just because the syllable counts of those takes rival Trump's entire speech, maybe that's confusing me. Those takes weren't necessarily wrong, but they were dressing up a pretty thumb-in-the-eye speech with pretty fanciful language, although Michel Foucault wrote at length and in arch academic detail about professional wrestling. And it wasn't just conservatives who gussied up the speech into being something bigger than it was. Edward Luce in the Financial Times said that the combative address will go down as a turning point in America's post-war role. No, I think the fact that he's president will be the turning point. Not that he gave a speech about that. My big insight into the speech is just how worthy of deep examination it was. And I don't mean by that, let us not pay attention to this man lest we normalize him. He is president. We should note a couple of parts of the speech, if only to subject him to the quaint practice of fact-checking. There were a couple moments that stood out, like this. An education system flush with cash but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. Flush with cash. Spending per pupil has fallen three straight years. It's lower than before the Great Recession. It's also wildly disproportionate even within states like in California, the Shoreline Unified School District spends eighteen thousand per student, the Ripon Unified School District spends less than seven thousand. Okay, next sentence. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. Needs to be said that crime is up ever so slightly in the last couple of years and it's down, way down, compared to 10, 20, or 40 years ago. But these were the few assertions, the few facts. This speech offered no new insight beyond Trump's usual inward-looking bellicosity that he gave to us time and time again on the campaign trail. I know legions of media were on hand to parse and to pick over. I mean, don't bother. I don't mean it as an insult. I mean it just practically Trump's mode of communicating is by tweet, by jab, by jaw jutting forward declaration. When he carefully considers his words, he offers up very little that has resonance and very little that actually reflects what his true policies are, what his true personality is. There is this idea that we should ignore his tweets or some of his tweets or tweets about Saturday Night Live or Hamilton. I say, no, his tweets are his true nature. His formal speeches are but a guise. They're Eddie Haskell buttering up Mrs. Cleaver. Or their are pictures, if you ever seen them, of Eminem at a court date wearing a suit. It's not really who he is. And yet we delve in on today's show. I spiel about the world beyond Trump specifically the, the world, you'll see what I mean. And also we have a just plus segment if you are a slate plus subscriber, but first back to back to back interviews. There's a man who wrote an inaugural address. There's a congressman who sat out this inaugural address, but first slate writer, Will Salatin who watched this inaugural address. So I could ask him if any of it matters. Well, joining me now in our rolling team coverage is Will Salatin, who writes about politics, science, technology, and lots, whatever strikes his fancy for Slate. Hello, Will. How are you?
3: Hey, Mike. Doing great.
1: How long could Donald Trump pound on the theme of hopelessness now that he's the leader? Yeah,
3: that's a little tricky. Uh, It's really funny. I was just watching the speech and, you know, you're sitting there watching it thinking, well, this is just like Trump's campaign speeches. And then you're like, well... (laughs) You know, it's one thing to give those speeches when you're running against the incumbent administration, and, you know, the little problem is that half an hour ago, he just became the incumbent administration, so it's highly unsustainable, I think, this strategy of his.
1: Although I have been looking back at past inaugural speeches and both Clinton and Obama came in during difficult economic times and they pivoted, they acknowledged the times, but then offered a message of hope. So here is Trump coming in amidst pretty good and improving economic times and he's doing the exact opposite. That might be a genius move. Like if he says things are terrible and then if things just improve at the rate they've been improving or even a little less, he could say, see, I made him better.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, well, the, the retrospective part of that is very Trump, right? It's all, it's all marketing. So first of all, if you're going to buy a property off of somebody, you want to talk about how lousy the property is, right? Right. And everything you do to it's going to be great by comparison. So he's doing that part of the job and trying to sell it. The problem is that you, if, you're, if you buy a property, you can hire people and control everything and fix it up. This job he just walked into is not like that at all. And if he thinks, I mean, I suppose if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And, you know, it doesn't cost him anything to have pretended. But the upside that he is selling about how he's going to fix everything and bring back your jobs and we're all going to win so much, that is going to be really tricky to deliver on. So, you know, Credit to him for, for, for playing this uh, low-balling of the property, but see, the other end, I think he's going to have a lot of trouble with.
1: See, I agree with you, but I place both of us in the fact-based community, and he's really good at governing by anecdote. I, I save these 700 jobs. I save these 800 jobs. People tend to rally around that. Maybe he knows something we don't. Maybe we're in the age because we've siloed off our information, because fake news is so important, because we can't even agree on a basic set of facts. Maybe we're in the age that if we could sell the anecdote, it's better than having real achievement.
3: Yeah, you know, in that sense, the Trump strategy is kind of a bet against reality. I mean, Mm -hmm. reality is sort of an aggregate. You know, it's a bet that if I can create a story where I, you know, find a company and they're going to export 2,000 jobs and I get them to keep 700 of them here, that I get so much credit for that that people don't particularly notice the bite in general of all the jobs that will continue to be lost, say, to automation. I, I think he 's wrong there, but yeah i 'm one of the many pundits who thought he was wrong in some of his prior guesses to that effect, so maybe i 'm still wrong, but I really feel like this is my feeling about Trump at this point. This is all the big short. you know if you watch the big short or you read the big Short, these guys who saw the stock market bubble in two thousand seven they they 're all in dismay that they keep being wrong that it 's going to collapse, and they start to wonder, am I wrong? Am I crazy? But it turns out they're not wrong. It just took the fundamentals a little longer to register. So I think that's kind of what Trump's walking into. That's my guess about where we are today.
1: Okay. I like the big short analogy insofar... It's people who knew they were right, but they got a little nervous because it took so long for them to be proved right. But in the specifics, I mean, what they were right about is that we were sitting on a bubble and they were saying bubbles have to burst. But in this case, America is not a bubble. It's the opposite. Things are improving. Things are gradually improving, but we're not realizing it. So, like, that's not a bubble that's going to burst. That's a bubble that's or I don't even know it's a bubble, but that that's the good times that possibly could keep on being good.
3: Yeah, the, I mean, Obama basically left Trump with a good economy, yeah. so your, your projection there, you have a good basis for that if Trump doesn't screw it up. Um, the problem is, first of all, is that Trump might screw it up, because one of the things he can do with some of his rhetoric is start a trade war. Um, the other thing is, there are processes going on that, despite the aggregate improvement in the economy, things like automation taking jobs or capital flight. Trump is really limited in his ability to affect either of those in general. I mean, he's told people that it's the Mexicans who took their jobs. He is not really dealing with the automation, which is the far bigger problem, as all economists will tell you. And so, you know, even if the aggregate numbers continue to improve, they were good for Obama, too, and that really didn't help the Democrats enough. It's the bite that for those blue-collar jobs that are lost in the Rust Belt, It's going to be really, really hard for Trump to deliver on that.
1: Yeah, and I also think that because he emphasizes manufacturing and factories so much, as if that were the economy, it will be hard for him if he were to pivot to point to other sectors of the economy. Like for him, that's the stand-in of how we're doing. And there's no way that those jobs are coming back. So that, I mean, I'm sure that the fact-based community will try to, you know, connect the dots between that reality and what he says. And maybe, you know, in two or three years, he'll start talking about other aspects of the economy and then I guess it's just up to it's just up to these these our fellow Americans who I just do not have a good sense of anymore to decide which is the more compelling argument
3: yeah and you know he's also made some other promises here or other implications of promises that are also going to be really difficult he's He's promised to eradicate uh, radical Islamic terrorism from the face of the earth. Now, if, you know, in a few years he's done his best and is basically where Obama is, which is you put out the fire in one place and it comes up in another, then it's going to be kind of hard to explain how he delivered on on that promise. Another one was about the military. He said, we spend all of our money trying to build up other countries' militaries and not on our own. Now, that's just, you know ridiculous that the amount, the, the, the relatively small amount of money that we spend subsidizing militaries abroad, will, that if we somehow don't spend that money, that that's going to make up, you know, trying to do a defense buildup of the magnitude he's talking about is going to be really expensive in addition to, you know, the fact that he doesn't want to deal with entitlement. So he's going to have a ballooning deficit, a ballooning debt. And he wants to do this military buildup, and it's way more expensive. And plus, the infrastructure is way more expensive than he's telling people. So these are all going to be promises that he's it's – it's basically impossible for him to deliver on most of these promises in a four-year term.
1: Right, right. And so if we hold him to his promises, he's going to be screwed. But then again, maybe we're thinking literally and not seriously. Tell me something, buck me up about my declining faith in enough of the American people, as we define it electorally, to be able to see through what we both think are going to be his inevitable failures.
3: I, I can't really buck you up here, Mike. I, it's, here, here's what I would say about that. The problem that the uh, electorate had with Donald Trump in terms of assessing his promises rationally was that he had never held office. He had essentially no record to compare to his rhetoric. So people were willing to to give him a flyer. Let's see if a businessman can do the job. And none of that lack of scrutiny will apply to him once he is in office. He will now be a politician. He will have a record. So there's not particularly a reason to believe that people will be less vigilant in assessing his record or less harsh in punishing him than they have been with any other politician. So that's where I think some of the fundamentals of politics will reassert themselves over the next couple of years.
1: Right. And I would also say, to buck myself up, that all he had to do was uh, appeal to people more than Hillary Clinton did. And now, uh, until he gets a rival in three years, he has to appeal to... Right track, wrong track. He has to appeal to, you know, do you approve or disapprove? He just has to appeal not more than some other flawed figure, but he has to appeal to people's uh, sense of rationality and progress.
3: Yeah, I, 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 and, and I would distinguish here between having some hope in the American people and having some hope in Trump himself. Um, I say this with, 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 no help, with no hope in Trump himself. I don't see any evidence, although I will give him a little bit of credit The most interesting thing to me about the the inaugural address... I counted three uses of the word I in that entire speech. Now, for Donald Trump, that is an all-time low. So he read from the prompter and the people around him made sure he didn't talk about himself. But in everything else he has said over the past week, he has talked extensively about himself, um, his grudges, the people who weren't nice enough to him, the credit he didn't get. um, That's going to persist. He is a man of low character, and he will be that. The larger question of whether America has lost its mind, I don't think that is true. I think that America gave this guy a chance. They were unhappy with the status quo. They were impatient. But that impatience will persist, and it will apply just as harshly to him.
1: Well, once again, Donald Trump hitting an all-time low, but this time a good all-time low. And uh, if this was the big short, Will Salatin was our Margot Robbie in the bathtub explaining things to us. (laughs) Thank you, Will. Thanks, Mike. Congressman Mark Desaunye represents California's 11th Congressional District, Contra, County, Contra Costa, California, and he uh, skipped the inauguration. Hello, Mr. Congressman. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I read and saw your statements. Now, I noticed you didn't use the word boycott. Was that purposeful?
0: Yes, uh, at the time that I recorded that, made it, the announcement, there was only, I think, a half a dozen or fewer people who were not going. Um, so the boycott, uh, I think that word started to be used after the John Lewis incident.
1: Would you then consider what you did now a boycott in retrospect? I mean, that's a
0: question of semantics, I suppose. It's a boycott. Just personally, as I said, my statement, and I said in my video that uh, I meant to just go back to my constituents in the district, because that's normally who uh, the audience is, is just explain why I wasn't going.
1: Right. So there are a lot of semantics around these decisions, the word legitimate and illegitimate. You could read into that what you want. And the word normalize, and in your statement, you wrote, as a student of American history, I cannot sit idly by and normalize a president who has, and then you listed some of Trump's lesser characteristics. But I want to talk about that word normalize and norm. Aren't you, by sitting this out, going against a norm, and that norm being the opposition party essentially gritting its teeth, but working with a president with whom you disagree to get things done for America and your constituents? I think you can do both. Um, I mean, I'm reminded of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson,
0: who um, fought very much against one one another. Um, At times in their history, really disliked each other, had people say horrible things about one another. Um, But they ended up being very good friends and dying on the same day, on the 4th of July, and so uh, I don't, when you talk about norms, Normalcy to me is acceptable to society. Without having a dictionary here, accepting to normal cultural agreements. That's why I said about common American the aspiration for decency. So for me, I think the norm that's being broken uh, by the president, the now president, um, by President Trump, uh, through since, since he was elected. So I didn't care for him as a candidate. Was concerned about him, but he did. I believe he. He he won. He's a legitimate president of the United States. He won the electoral college votes, um, even though he lost the popular votes. That's how we elect presidents. So, he's legitimate in my view. However, um, he's unlike any president that I'm aware of in this country and certainly in my lifetime in terms of being divisive. Um, so I don't want to normalize that behavior. On Monday, I'll be back in D.C., and I will work with him and work with my colleagues to make sure that the Constitution is adhered to, and we do everything we can to help the American public.
1: Was this a statement about essentially what he's done thus far and going forward? You know, I take it to mean you won't, you don't plan on sitting out, join sessions of Congress or states of the Union. Uh, you'll evaluate him by his behavior going forward? You know, I think that's true, and I will do it. It's a personal decision. I have complete respect for uh, my
0: colleagues who went. I I could easily make the argument that you should go. Uh, But for me, it was a personal decision, and it was really – really the the catalyst for the final decision was his Wednesday press conference where he and his attorney said what the constitutional and ethics requirements were for his conflicts of interest that's not the way the system works that's not anywhere near legal or by tradition normal so I think he's in violation of the Constitution right now and the only way for him to fix that is to work with the office of government ethics the way his predecessors all did uh, to get an opinion of whether he has a conflict of interest and in whether he's in violation of the Constitution. If he doesn't do that, he's putting us, putting us in a near-term constitutional crisis because we're going to have case after case where foreign
1: governments are influencing his decision-making. We could list all of the businesses he does overseas. I constantly point to the fact that the biggest tenant in Trump Tower is the Bank of China. Its lease comes due in 2019. How do you ignore that? But you are Congress, and the emoluments clause says without the consent of Congress, but you are a minority party in Congress. So what can you do about that?
0: Well, what I intend to do, and I want to work with colleagues and work with the oversight and government reform committee and the judiciary committee, where the, the this would be under, is to every time we are aware of one of these things, bring a bill, a resolution to the floor of the Congress, or at least introduce one, saying we should approve this or not, and then the majority party will have to decide whether to ignore it or not.
1: And it'll be and on we'll it'll be
0: on them it'll be on them. Everyone that comes up, it requires due process. So we should have a public conversation with experts saying, is the Bank of China uh, giving him a profit? Well, uh, if we don't get a hearing, then the majority party and the speaker should be held accountable for not even having a hearing to have a process to find out if the President of the United States is in violation of the Constitution of the United States.
1: Now, Charles Schumer, senator, uh, not congressman, not not member of the House of Representatives, but important Democratic senator says when we can agree on issues, we're going to work with him for the sake of working with him. He cites the infrastructure bill, because this is Mm -hmm. something that Democrats want. What would you want from an infrastructure bill, which he's talking uh, the president is talking about a lot?
0: Well, there's a t- tremendous need, as Secretary Clinton, as a candidate said. she was very specific about spending money on infrastructure. We've delayed infrastructure uh, investment in this country for 30 years, 40 years, and it's time to reinvest in it. And we know what that will do for working Americans. Um, how we pay for it, I think, is where we might anticipate having a robust debate about.
1: Right. So this is the idea that some of his floated proposals depend a lot on privatization and making profits. And with some parts of infrastructure, it's very hard to make a profit and it might not even be proper.
0: Absolutely. So what I'm worried about having been involved in the study of public-private partnerships and transportation and infrastructure quite a bit is that a traditional engineering project that's overseen properly in the public sector from the research I've seen generally is uh, returns a better investment to the taxpayer. So there are lots of examples where they weren't done right, uh, but there's lots of examples in public private partnerships where they weren't done right as well. So the devil's in the details. I don't think you can do the kind of infrastructure program that we need to do on public private partnerships efficiently. The cynic at me thinks that this is all set up. This is a bait and switch.
1: So I understand you have to serve your constituents and you have to make their lives better and not worse at at every turn. Yet there's a part of me, I look at the Democratic Party and so much of their arguments is we're here to guard Social Security. We're here as a bulwark against, you know, uh, raiding federal programs. You're always pulling the irons out of the fire to some extent. Is there something to be said for, look, we don't want it to happen, but maybe the public needs to see the consequence of some of these terrible ideas, like blowing through the debt ceiling? I don't know. Maybe that will be a generational corrective to getting these terrible ideas off the table. What do you think about that?
0: Well, that's a horrible risk to 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 go through, if you ask me. Now, I think it has to be taken, like in blowing off the debt ceiling, so that the Republicans all of a sudden realize that the American public didn't accept that. Um, That old expression in politics, never murder a political opponent who's committing suicide. So there are instances where I would say, let them go ahead. But in good conscience, I think you have to fight for what you believe in all the time. And that's what I intend to do for whatever time I have left in Congress.
1: Mark Desaunier represents California's 11th Congressional Congressional District. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Joining me now is Michael Waldman. During the Clinton presidency, he was from 1995 through 1999 the chief speechwriter. He's written some states of the union and had uh, a hand or two in at least punching up an inaugural or two. Is that right?
2: Yes, I worked on both President Bill Clinton's first and second inaugurals.
1: So I watched the Trump inaugural. I thought it was Unlike any other inaugural I've seen or read, I've read a few. It wasn't grand. It wasn't stirring. It wasn't a statement of ideals other than a full bullet point. It was direct. It was blunt. It was very Donald Trump-like. But what was your take? Well, we saw the same speech. Um, ah. I, it was it was quite unusual in the
2: whole stream of presidential inaugurals. There, it, it, it was dark. It was negative. It was divisive deliberately and it was it was blunt and clean in the writing and forceful in the delivery, um, but it was as far from what presidents from George Washington to Ronald Reagan to Barack Obama thought was appropriate and in and inaugural as it's possible to get. It, it, it was really striking.
1: So do you think, because it breaks from the optimism and... The context setting that we usually see in inaugural, you know, the broad sweep of history. I know Bill Clinton went back to George Washington when he was given the opportunity. So because it breaks from that, do you think there's a chance that whatever honeymoon period a new president was going to get, he, um, he diminished that period a little bit?
2: When you look at these inaugurals, a the first inaugural, in a way, is easier to write and give than anything else because you come in and say we're making change
1: and there's such goodwill behind you
2: yeah there's goodwill behind you and you especially can tap that if there's a crisis well the crisis right now is Donald Trump becoming president he's breaking his own crisis with him he's stirred the pot at a time when most presidents or presidents elect try to kind of calm the waters so he didn't use the transition to increase his support, and he didn't use the inaugural either. I guess as a a political matter, as a strategic choice, he was trying to deepen the enthusiasm of his own supporters rather than broadening that base. And there was some aspects of the inaugural that probably were very powerful to some people, the populism of talking about um, economic decline and how the establishment, as he put it, wasn't listening, and we were going to end that. I'm sure some people hear that and say, finally, someone is is talking uh, to me in my life. It's just the way he did it was so negative and and full of such... Uh, bombast that uh, it's hard to know whether it will even lead to policies in the administration.
1: Yeah. And there is such a an industry around just rallying around the trappings of the presidency. And we see this from the press and even the public when on election night, he just said some de minimis niceties, um, nothing so grand about reaching a handout, but it was it was nice enough. And people almost fell over to say, wow, could this be a new Donald Trump? Perhaps he's mistaking the willingness of uh, even his opponents or people on the fence to give him a chance.
2: Well, I, I, I was writing an assessment uh, of the speech as a former speechwriter. That's what we get called on to do every once in a while um, for, for a newspaper just now. And I found myself writing the speech was less racist than usual, though <laughs> so that was a really positive breakthrough <laughs> in the sense that there's uh, the soft bigotry of low expectations, as uh, George W. Bush said in an earlier uh, inaugural address. Uh, but, but people do still have a deep reverence for the presidency, and most politicians who find themselves in that office use that reverence for their own purposes. They they drape themselves in the trappings of the office, because there is a way in which it's not just um, a political leader, and it's not just the head of the government, but it's head of state in the way a monarch is in another country. Trump clearly revels in the trappings, the the marching bands, and the big planes of the presidency, but I think misses the whole point about the Constitution and, and the other stuff that people like about it, I looked at the speech. He didn't mention the Constitution. Right. He didn't use the word liberty. He didn't use the word democracy. He didn't say all men are created equal or any of the other lines, famous lines from the Declaration of Independence, which is something that presidents do. It's, some, it's almost like a religious incantation in these speeches. And he didn't quote scripture. Some people might not like it when politicians quote scripture, but it's actually pretty common uh, in an inaugural address as part of the sort of civic religion of, of the country. Bill Clinton, in his second inaugural, talked about racial healing um, and, and trying to end the hyper-partisanship, uh, and he quoted scripture uh, uh, wanting to be a repairer of the breach, which was, which was a line from scripture. There was none of that. Um, it, it, so, you know, it was an interesting set of, of, uh, of choices by Trump.
1: You know, as you say that, it strikes me that, yeah, he wants to be apart from the establishment and he wants to be seen as someone who's anti-elite. But, you know, in being apart from however he defines Washington, he's also casting himself as almost entirely separate from civic life. And... Uh, you know, there could be people who are pretty dangerous, like a lot of these Tea Partiers who always are rallying and talking about the Constitution. But Trump just seems to be this phenomenon who is, you know, divorced from civics.
2: Well, that's one of the things that worries me so much about him and others, many others. Uh, you know, I'm more worried about the damage he's going to do to the Constitution that he swore to uphold at noon, frankly, than the words he said a few minutes later. He seems to have little uh, innate reverence for, as you say, civic life, for the institutions of our democracy. Um, His willingness to get up during the campaign, but uh, even more so during the transition, and lie and say, oh, there's millions of people voting illegally, with no concept that that is something that undermines American democracy and that that's a bad thing to do.
1: Okay. So you and I have talked about the limitations of his rhetoric today and in general, the limitations of uh, how he defines uh, public service. Fine. But I like to check myself before I wreck myself. And maybe we're getting it all wrong. Maybe we've bought too much into the power of the poetry of a speech. And maybe, you know, in 2017, jabs and Twitter and hot takes are actually the way to communicate with America.
2: Well, look, all presidents, all leaders use whatever the means of communication is or are that are available. I think, though, major speeches still have a pretty significant role. We saw his rallies had a big role. They were the essence of his get out the vote strategy. Uh, A lot of people will have seen this speech, his first Good heavens, State of the Union address, which is at night, will get a lot of attention. In the inaugural speech today, he said several times, our goal is America first, America first. And he said, protectionism will bring us prosperity. He has the themes of Charles Lindbergh and the economics of Smoot Hawley, neither of which worked out very well for the country in the 1930s. And he knows fully well that America first is the slogan of the anti-Semitic isolationist group that opposed U.S. opposition to Hitler. He knows. He may not have known it the first time he said it, but he sure knows it now. And so for a president of the United States to stand up there and say that, the rabbi who, who came on right after to give a prayer, I wonder what he was thinking.
1: Yeah, although I think most Americans think that uh, Charles Lindbergh, Donald Trump, oh, I know what they have in common. They both had a plane <laughs> right, exactly. I'm not. I'm so, not right. I'm not. They sure. They don't even know it.
2: Yeah, who was Charles Lindbergh again? Yeah. yeah so no, but, that's true. Uh, but Trump knows.
1: But well, I wonder how much. Yes, in that. But I wonder in other areas how much he knows. Like he or how deft his strategy is when he speaks of the american carnage of our cities which is inaccurate for the whole campaign he was trying to convince us that things are worse uh in the cities and with crime than they are now that he's president that argument will soon stop helping him it will hurt him you know look richard nixon he ran for office on
2: law and order on pointing to the divisions and the riots and rising crime, although there was a lot more of that when he ran than there is now. And his first year in office, he kind of tried to calm things down. Um, he, he he tried not to be divisive. He actually hired some Democrats like Daniel Patrick Moynihan to work in his White House. And then as the 1969 Ended as the 1970 midterm election approached, he switched strategies and went back to being divisive and saying uh, the, that rioters were on the rampage and and he talked about the, that's where he talked about the silent majority and uh, against the hippies and the protesters and and some presidents um, not many but some presidents have continued to try to stoke those divisions while in office. Um, it doesn't always work out. Well, for them, like Richard Nixon. But Nixon, uh, Nixon has a bit more in common with Trump on this than uh, than we might like to think.
1: Michael Waldman was a former director of speech writing for uh, Bill Clinton's White House from 95 to 99. He, it says, he's responsible for writing or editing nearly 2,000 speeches, and he is now the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. Thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. And now the spiel. First of all, in case you were in need of context, you heard Michael Waldman there mention Lindbergh. You know, he expressed admiration for the Nazis, was an isolationist before Pearl Harbor, right? And Smoot Hawley, that was the tariff passed right before the Great Depression. It was named after Willis Hawley of Oregon and Utah Senator Reed Smoot, whose name is an exact anagram of odometer's. And now the rest of the spiel, I just want to focus on the rest of the world, the non-Trump world. Dateline, the Gambia, Yaya Gemma, has ruled the country for 22 years, lost an election December 1st, refused to go. But now, with Senegalese troops amassing on the border, says he'll go. African strongman who refuses to leave, that's not so unique. But you know what is the Gambia? Perhaps I could tell you that it's less than the size of Connecticut. Yeah, sure. But Connecticut is at least logically shaped, largely rectangular. The Gambia is this little squiggly insert in the west coast of Africa. It's like you were playing Jenga with the rest of Senegal, and you wanted to slip one little piece in the middle. That'd be the Gambia. Also, the Gambia adheres to a brilliant organizing principle, follow the river. You know how in Egypt, you got a whole big country, but 95% of the people live along the banks of the Nile and in the Nile Delta? Well, Gambia said, screw the rest of it. We'll just take to the banks. They got this river, the Gambia River, and they trace the outlines of a country a few miles north of it and a few miles south of it. And in a bout of truth and advertising, they call the country the Gambia. Why the Gambia, though, and not just Gambia? I mean, the Congo is a river, but the country is Congo, not the Congo. So here's why. Because there is a committee on geographical names in England, and the prime minister of the UK, as the BBC explains, had a request. The PM actually asked that commission, could they be continue to be
3: called the Gambia for a absolutely obvious reason at the time that we've forgotten about it now, and that is there's another country being uh, made independent
1: called Zambia. And they didn't want Gambia and Zambia to be confused. And now the Gambia is one of two countries with a the before it. Can you guess the other? The answer after this news about a country that people put a the before, but they shouldn't, Ukraine. Ukraine has a far right, you know, Nazi-esque guise, they're supported by the Russians, shouldn't surprise you. Their branding's unbelievable. They call themselves the misanthropic division. And now the misanthropic division has branched out to Brazil to recruit Brazilian thugs and Nazis and bring them over to Ukraine, the misanthropic division. So this, of course, brings us to Russia. So here in America, I don't know, eight months ago, we're all pretty suspicious of the Russians and their fingerprints on fake news. Now, it depends who you voted for, but there is a country that is four square against them, and that country is Sweden. The Russians have been threatening the Swedes for decades, and the Swedes don't like it. The Swedes just came out with a new study that traces all these instances of fake news trying to sow domestic unrest in Sweden. For instance, they found a forged letter purportedly written by Sweden's foreign affairs minister about seeking cooperation with the Islamic State. And the prime minister of Sweden said he can't rule out that the Russians would try to influence Sweden's election. So you know what else the Swedes are doing about this? I'll tell you what. They created a plot line in a popular children's comic book to warn kids about fake news. Bempsy, a cartoon bear who becomes strong by eating magic honey, has run into some fake news. I'll narrate this panel. Bamsi Blur Inti Stark av Dunder Langre which means Bamsi doesn't get strong by eating magic honey anymore and then Bamsi adds det på Internet I read it on the internet, but his wise turtle friend responds Hardu control ratkellan! Have you verified the source? And I say let that be an international call to arms. To quote the wise Swedish turtle. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson does solemnly swear that just producer Chris Berube will faithfully execute the office of just producer and will to the best of Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's ability, preserve, protect and defend the constitution of chief content officer of Panoply Network, Andy Bowers. The gist we could have been named the pointless anarchist trash can fire, would have been timely, would have been inaccurate. Umper doo Peru. and thanks for listening.